Chapter 10 of The Year When Stardust Fell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jamie Todd. The Year When Stardust Fell by Raymond F. Jones. Chapter 10 Victory of the Dust. By the time Ken was through with the ordeal in court, Art Matthews had succeeded in building an engine from entirely new parts. He had installed it in an airtight room into which only filtered air could pass. This room and another air filter had been major projects in themselves. The science club members had done most of the work after their daily stint at the laboratory, while Art had scoured the town for parts that would fit together. At the end of the hearing, Ken went to the garage. The engine had been running for five hours then. Art was grinning like a schoolboy who had just won a spelling bee. She sure sounds sweet, he said. I'll bet we can keep her going as long as we have gasoline. I hope so, Ken said. It's just a waste of power to let it run that way, though. Art scratches his head. Yeah, it's funny. Power is what we've been wanting, and now we've got a little we don't know what to do with it. Let's see if we can find a generator, said Ken. Charge some batteries with it. Do you think there's one in town? The best deal I can think of would be to scrounge a big motor, say an elevator motor, and convert it. The one belonging to the five-story elevator in the Norton building is our best bet. I don't imagine it froze up before the power went out. Let's get it then, said Ken. Shut this off until we're ready to use it. To be on the safe side, could you cast some new bearings for the generator? I don't see why not. When he returned home, Ken told his father for the first time about the project Art was working on. It sounds interesting, Professor Maddox said. I'm not sure exactly what it will prove. Ken slumped in the large chair in the living room, weak from his exertions of the day. It would mean that if we could find enough unfrozen engines or could assemble them from spare parts, we could get some power equipment in operation again. However, as Art said about this one engine, what good is it? Dad, even if we lick this problem, how are things ever going to get started up again? What do you mean? We've got one automobile engine going. Pretty soon we'll run out of gas here in Mayfield. Where do we get more? We can't until the railroad can haul it or the pipelines can pump it. What happens when the stock at the refineries is all used up? How can they get into operation again? They need more power for their own plant, electricity for their pumps and engines. All of their frozen equipment has to be replaced. Maybe some of it will have to be manufactured. How do the factories and plants get started again? I don't know the answers to all that, Ken's father said. Licking the comet dust is only half the problem, and perhaps the smallest half at that. Our economy and industry will have to start almost from scratch in getting underway. How that will come about, if it ever does, I do not know. To conserve their ration of firewood, only a small blaze burned in the fireplace. The kitchen and living room were being heated by it alone. The rest of the house was closed off. We ought to rig up something else, Ken said tiredly. That wastes too much heat. What's Mom cooking on? Mayor Hilliard found a little wood burner and gave it to me. I haven't had time to try converting our oil furnace. Ken felt unable to stay awake longer. He went upstairs to bed for a few hours. Later his mother brought a dinner tray. Do you want it here, or would you rather come down where it's warm? she asked. I'll come down. I want to get up for a while. Maria is out in the shack. She has a scheduled contact with Berkeley, but she says the transmitter won't function. 
It looks like a burned-out tube to her. She wanted to call Joe. Ken scrambled out of bed and grabbed for his clothes. I'll take care of it. Save dinner for me. We've got to keep the station on the air, no matter what happens. He found Maria seated by the desk, listening to the Berkeley operator's repeated call, to which she could not reply. The girl wore a heavy cardigan sweater, which was scarcely sufficient for the cold in the room. The small tin-can heater was hardly noticeable. Maria looked up as Ken burst through the doorway. "'I didn't want you to come,' she said. "'They could have called Joe. "'We can't risk disturbing our schedule. "'They might think we've gone under and we'd lose our contact completely.' Hastily, he examined the tube layout and breathed a sigh of relief when he saw it was merely one of the 801s that had burned a filament. They had a good stock of spares. He replaced the tube and closed the transmitter cage. After the tubes had warmed up, and the Berkeley operator paused to listen for their call, Ken picked up the microphone and threw in the antenna switch. Mayfield calling Berkeley. He repeated this several times. Our transmitter's been out with a bum bottle. Let us know if you read us now. He repeated again and switched back to the receiver. The Berkeley operator's voice indicated his relief. I read you, Mayfield. I hoped you hadn't gone out of commission. The eggheads here seem to think your Maddox-Larsen combination is coming up with more dope on comet dust than anybody else in the country. Ken grinned and patted himself and Maria on the back. That's us, he said. She grimaced at him. Hush, she said. I've got a big report here from Dr. French. Confirm if you're ready to tape it, and I'll let it roll. Maria cut in to confirm that they were receiving and ready to record. The Berkeley operator chuckled as he came back. That's the one I like to hear, he said. That Scandahoovian accent is real cute. Just as soon as things get rolling again, I'm coming out there to see what else goes with it. He's an idiot, Maria said. But probably a pretty nice guy, Ken said. They listened carefully as the Berkeley operator read a number of pages of reports by Dr. French and his associates concerning experiments run in the university laboratories. These gave Ken a picture of the present stage of the work on the comet dust. He felt disheartened. Although the material had been identified as a colloidal compound of a new transuranic metal, no one had yet been able to determine its exact chemical structure, nor involve it in any reaction that would break it down. It seemed to Ken that one of the biggest drawbacks was lack of sufficient sample material to work with. Everything they were doing was by micro-methods. He supposed it was his own lack of experience and his clumsiness in the techniques that made him feel he was always working in the dark when trying to analyze chemical specimens that were barely visible. When the contact was completed and the station signed off, Maria told Ken what she had heard over the air during the time he was in the hospital. Several other amateur operators in various parts of the country had heard them with their own battery-powered sets. They had asked to join in an expanded news net. Joe and Al agreed to this, and Ken approved as he heard of it. It's a good idea. I was hoping to reach some other areas. Maybe we can add some industrial laboratories to our net if any are still operating. We've got three, said Maria. General Electric in Schenectady, General Motors in Detroit, and Hughes in California. Amateurs working for these companies called in. They're all working on the dust. Through these new amateur contacts, Maria had learned that Chicago had been completely leveled by fire. Thousands had died in the fire, and in the rioting that preceded it. New York City had suffered almost as much, although no general fire had broken out. Mob riots over the existing scanty food supplies had taken thousands of lives. Other thousands had been lost in a panicky exodus from the city. 
The highways leading into the farming areas in upstate New York and New England areas were clogged with starving refugees. Thousands of huddled bodies lay under the snow. Westward into Pennsylvania and south into Delaware it was the same. Here the refugees were met with other streams of desperate humanity moving out of the thickly populated cities. Epidemics of disease had broken out where the starving population was thickest and the sanitary facilities poorest. On the west coast, the situation was somewhat better. The population of the Bay Area was streaming north and south toward Red Bluff and Sacramento, and into the Salinas and San Joaquin valleys. From southern California, they were moving east to the reclaimed desert farming areas. There were suffering and death among them, but the rioting and mob violence were less. From all over the country, there were increasing reports of groups of wanderers moving like nomadic tribesmen, looting, killing, and destroying. There was no longer any evidence of a central government capable of sufficient communication to control these elements of the population on even a local basis. Maria played the tapes of these reports for Ken. She seemed stolid and beyond panic as she heard them again. To Ken, hearing them for the first time, it seemed utterly beyond belief. It was simply some science fiction horror story played on the radio or television, and when it was over he would find the world was completely normal. He looked up and saw Maria watching him. He saw the little tin can stove with a few sticks of green wood burning ineffectively. He saw the large rack of batteries behind the transmitter. Unexpectedly, for the first time in many days, he thought of the Italian steamship alone in the middle of the Atlantic. The White Bird, he said to Maria. Did you hear anything more of her? One of the amateurs told me he'd picked up a report from the ship about a week ago. The radio operator said he was barricaded in the radio room. Rioting had broken out all over the ship. Dozens of passengers had been killed. The ones who were left were turning cannibalistic. That was the last report anyone has heard from the ship. Ken shuddered. He glanced through the window and caught a vision of Science Hall on College Hill. A fortress, he thought. There were maybe a dozen other such fortresses scattered throughout the world. In them lay the only hope against the enemy that rampaged across the earth. In the sky he could see the comet's light faintly, even through the lead-gray clouds from which snow was falling. "'You should get back to bed,' said Maria. "'You look as if you had been hit two hours ago instead of two weeks.' "'Yeah, I guess I'd better.' Ken arose, feeling weak and dizzy. "'Can you get that report typed for Dad tonight? It would be good for him to be able to take it up to the lab with him in the morning.' "'I'll get it done,' said Maria. "'You get off to bed.' As much as he rebelled against it, Ken was forced to spend the next two days in bed. Dr. Adams allowed him to be up no more than a few hours on the third day. I'm afraid you took a worse beating than any of us thought, the doctor said. You'll just have to coast for a while. It was as he was finally getting out of bed again that he heard Art Matthews, when the mechanic came to the door and spoke with Ken's mother. This is awfully important, Art said. I wish you'd ask him if he doesn't feel like seeing me for just a minute. He's had a bad relapse, and the doctor says he has to be kept very quiet for a day or two longer. Dressed except for his shoes, Ken went to the hall and leaned over the stair railing. I'll be down in just a minute, Art. It's okay, Mom. I'm feeling good today. Ken, you shouldn't, his mother protested. In a moment, he had his shoes on and was racing down the stairs. What's happened, Art? Anything gone wrong? The mechanic looked downcast. Everything. We got the Norton elevator motor and hooked it up with the gas engine. It ran fine for a couple days, and we got a lot of batteries charged up. Then it quit, said Ken.
Yeah, how did you know? I've been afraid we had missed one bet. It just isn't enough to supply filtered air to the engines built on new parts. The parts themselves are already contaminated with the dust. As soon as they go into operation, we have the same old business all over again. Unless some means of decontamination can be found, these new parts are no better than the old ones. Some of these parts were wrapped in tissue paper and sealed in cardboard boxes, Art protested. How could enough dust get to them to ruin them? The dust has a way of getting into almost any corner it wants to, said Ken. Dad and the others have found it has a tremendous affinity for metals, so it seeps through cracks and sticks. It never moves off once it hits a piece of metal. What parts of the engine froze? Pistons, bearings, just like all the rest. The generator shaft, too? Art nodded. It might have gone a few more revolutions. It seemed to loose when we started work, but as soon as we broke the bearings apart, they seemed to fasten onto the shaft like they were alive. How do you account for that? The bearings were new. I just cast them yesterday. They were contaminated by dust between casting and installation in the protected room. We've got to dig a lot deeper before we've got the right answer. It might be worthwhile setting up another rig just like the one we have in order to get some more juice in our batteries. Do you think you could do it again, or even several times? That engine lasted about 90 hours, didn't it? 88 altogether. I suppose I could do it again if you think it's worth it. The trouble is getting generators. Maybe we could machine the shaft of this one and cast a new set of bearings to fit. I'll try if you think it's worth it. Get it ready to run, said Ken. The battery power for our radio isn't going to last forever. We'll be in a real jam if we lose touch with the outside. End of chapter 10